Welcome back, friends. Welcome, brothers and sisters. Welcome, enemies. Welcome, well-wishers. All of those who uh, don't wish us any specific harm. Thank you for being with us. This is the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity and by the Rebel Alliance Media Network. We're happy to be here with you again. Today is the third and final reading in Joe Boot's book, For Mission, The Need for Scriptural Cultural Theology. We tested this out uh, with, some, uh, with some Facebook Live settings and seemed to have some, uh, some pretty good response. Really enjoyed doing it, and we'll put it out here as well again. We're working on a audiobook version of this, this title, uh, so let, let us know what you think, and let us, uh, let us know what, uh, what other titles you would want to, to hear going forward. I should also mention that uh, those, two, those two ministries, the Rebel Alliance and the Ezra Institute, go ahead and check them out. We do more than this one podcast. Uh, the Rebel Alliance has got podcasts coming out several days a week um, with uh, Nate and Pudi, uh, with the, the main, the flagship Rebel Alliance podcast. I'm not sure if that has another name or if it's just called the Rebel Alliance podcast. Uh, Grant and Erica Van Brimmer run a podcast that goes through different, several different series and themes. And uh, this most recent one that, uh, that we're in right now is called Systematics for Saplings. And it's a podcast for your kids, for your family, taking them through some of the fundamentals of systematic theology. Ben Emery does a podcast on uh, redeeming history. And I can't remember if there's anything else. Sorry, guys. But there, there's lots of stuff. There's videos, articles, blog posts, lots of, lots of great material coming out from a Rebel Alliance. And over at the Ezra Institute, uh, I would be remiss if I didn't mention the, the articles and blogs and uh, videos and podcasts coming out there as well. All of these resources are meant to help you engage with culture from a biblical perspective, uh, to be equipped to, uh, to respond with a confidence in the Word of God that it has something to say to every area of life. And so I would, uh, I would encourage you to, uh, to get, get some more resources by checking out EzraInstitute.ca and RebelAllianceMedia.com. Thanks for being with us. Here's the reading. I've, uh, like I've mentioned in the past, it continues to be true that this is for a recording of an audiobook. That means that uh, you're going to hear false starts, I'm going to start again, and you're just, uh, we'll, we'll ride this out together. I'm back again with my blue shirt, uh, with my water bottle. It's hot as blazes today. And the room where I would uh, normally record, we have a, uh, a big air conditioner running right outside. So, in the interest of recording quality, I hope you'll be proud of me, Dave. Um, we're, uh, we're in the, uh, the hot, stuffy room. But uh, it's, not, it's not so bad as all that. I shouldn't complain. It's a nice place to be. Okay, well, thanks for, thanks for being with us. And here we go. The Philosophical Foundations of Churchianity We saw in passing that according to scholastic theology, the Church Institute con 
man, it's an early, early mistake. I was just making sure I was recording, so I got distracted. The Philosophical Foundations of Churchianity <clears throat> We saw in passing that according to scholastic theology, the Church Institute coincides completely with the Kingdom of God, giving rise to the ecclesiasticizing of life ubiquitous in the medieval Roman Catholic view of reality. However, as we will see, the churchianity that persists among many evangelicals in our age posits an even more radical ecclesiasticizing of life, where the link between creation and redemption, which scholastic thought struggled to maintain, has been all but severed. In both cases, lying beneath this dualistic perspective is actually a non-Christian philosophy of life. The scholastic tradition essentially sought to Christianize the pagan Greek view of nature composed of form and matter, in order to forge, via this synthesis, a meaningful connection between the credible philosophical views of the ancient world, <clears throat> especially in the thought forms of Aristotle, and the Gospel. In fact, in 1263, Pope Urban IV reminded Christian scholars that a decree of Pope Gregory IX, with <clears throat> that a decree of Pope Gregory IX, which forbade the teaching of Aristotle as mediated by the Arabs, at the same time called on them to interpret Aristotle for the Christian faith. Quote, William of Morbeek and Thomas Aquinas were summoned to the papal court to assume the task of assimilating Aristotle into the Christian world of thought. Aquinas's purposes. <clears throat> Aquinas's purpose reflected a supreme confidence shared by many that an establishment of Christian truth upon the foundation of the reason of autonomous man was possible. End quote. However, in reality, the <clears throat> however, in reality, the Aristotelian concept of nature and of man cannot be reconciled with the biblical view of man as God's image bearer and the free act of creation, the calling into being of the totality of reality from nothing by the triune and totally sovereign God. On the ancient Greek view, nature was the product of impersonal divine reason giving form to uncreated matter. These two poles stood over against each other. Greek thought saw nature as composed of form, spirit or idea, and matter. In this dualism, matter was the lower realm, and spirit, idea, or form the higher, superior realm. Consequently, for many Greek thinkers, the body was a prison for the soul from which one ought to seek escape. Early Gnostics and Marcionite heretics in the early church expressed this dualism both by denigrating the body and creation, some claiming that the material world was created by a lesser god or demiurge, and by driving a wedge between the older and newer testaments, between law and gospel, creation and redemption. The one belonged to the lower realm of matter, the other to the higher realm of idea and spirit. When certain Christian philosophers like Thomas Aquinas later tried to harmonize Christianity with Greek thought on the basis of an unfallen reason, they essentially adopted the Greek view of nature as form and matter, but added that in order for man to truly understand himself and his spiritual nature, in order to be truly fulfilled and saved, grace must be added. With the intellectual soul being absolute form, man's knowledge and understanding of reality went <clears throat> with the intellectual soul being absolute form, man's knowledge and understanding of reality in terms of independent reason was fine as far as it went i.e. for all the ordinary stuff of life, for philosophy and education, science and art, politics and government. However, for spiritual life and the way of salvation, that is, for the realm of faith, 
man needed the addition of grace, a supernatural addition. In short, on top of nature, one needed a second story to complete life. Grace must be added in order to perfect nature. In this way, the scholastic tradition sought to maintain a link between the gospel of redemption in Christ and a philosophical view of nature inherited from Greek philosophy. This attempted synthesis of incompatible views led to the emergence of the idea... <clears throat> that was weak. I'm going to try again. This attempted synthesis of incompatible views led to the emergence of the idea of a secular and sacred realm, one ruled over by reason and natural law, the other by grace and special revelation. <clears throat> this gave the Church Institute the roles of mediator of salvation in the sacred realm, the church, or king <clears throat> the church or Kingdom of God, and spiritual director of society when playing the role of chaplain to a secular government which went about its common tasks in terms of the dictates of reason. At times, nature and grace, or emperor and pope, battled it out for supremacy in terms of who anointed whom. However, in the 14th century, a Franciscan monk named William of Ockham denied that there was a real point of contact between the realms of nature and grace. Aquinas had tried to tie the Greek concept of nature to the faith of the Church, but Ockham denied that these could be held together. He held to the idea of a divine arbitrariness. Human reason could not find out nor prove God. Belief in God was simply a matter of faith, not of knowledge. And so, cutting the link between nature and grace, knowledge and faith, between creation and redemption, he rejected the idea of Christianized society, holding to the complete sovereignty of secular government. In many respects, Occam anticipates the modern period of history, shunting off the supernatural Christian life, the realm of faith and revelation, to another world and privatizing Christianity to the church and individual believer. The 20th, <clears throat> the 20th century Dutch Christian philosopher Herman Doyward observes that Occam's criticism of the nature-grace link left two options for Christians. Quote, One could either return to the scriptural ground motive of the Christian religion, or in line with the new motive of nature severed from the faith of the church, establish a modern view of life concentrated in the religion of the human personality. The first path led to the Reformation. <clears throat> the first path led to the Reformation. The second path led to modern humanism. End quote. Although we rightly associate the Reformation with Martin Luther, the Lutheran and Calvinistic view of the relationship of the gospel with culture, of creation and redemption, and consequently of the mission of God's people, developed in very different directions. Luther himself was educated in Occam's view of things when at the Erfurt Monastery. In fact, Luther openly declared, I am of Occam's school, and continued, <clears throat> and continued Occam's sharp distinction between natural life and supernatural life. So, and continued Occam's distinction. Man, I'm stumbling over this particular sentence. It's not, uh, it's not a particularly difficult sentence. I don't know why. Anyway. In fact, Luther openly declared, I am of Occam's school, and continued Occam's sharp distinction between natural life and supernatural Christian life. It is no surprise, then, that we do not find in Luther an intrinsic connection between the Christian faith and one's earthly life. We see the same dualism expressed in Luther's law <clears throat> We see the same dualism expressed in Luther's strong law-gospel opposition, 
another persistent error in modern evangelicalism. Here, the Christian has nothing to do with the law, for the law is for the sin nature and is viewed in almost antithetical relationship to grace. The law is stripped by Luther of its function and importance as creational ordinance. As Doyaward has pointed out, he did not acknowledge a single link between nature, taken with its lawful ordinances, and the grace of the gospel. Accordingly, redemption was seen as the death of nature rather than its renewal and rebirth. It is certainly the case that Luther... <clears throat> It is certainly the case that Luther rejected monasticism, but he is radically inconsistent. Luther even contrasted God's will as the Creator, who places a person amidst the natural ordinances, with God's will as the Redeemer, who frees a person from the law. Following the scholastic thinkers, and despite famously calling reason a whore, for Luther reason remained the guide for the realm of nature, and there is no point of contact between this reason and the revelation of God's word. In the vein of Occam, he regarded secular government, social order, and justice as belonging to the domain of reason, not revelation. Although Luther was not thoroughly consistent and clearly saw a place for God's commandments in society because of the context of Christendom, he inhabited nonetheless a radical sacred-secular divide. Oh man, I missed that. <clears throat> Although Luther was not thoroughly consistent and clearly saw a place for God's commandments in society because of the context of Christendom he inhabited, Nonetheless, a radical sacred-secular divide remained in Luther's thought, with ecclesiastical life identified with the kingdom of God. What was proper to the distinctly Christian life was the realm of grace, expressed in word and sacrament in the church, but justice, beauty, and the like belonged to the realm of the sinful nature. Like many Christians before him, Luther did not recognize that the totality of a person's life and thinking. <clears throat> like many Christians before him, Luther did not recognize that the to Oh, man. Andrew, you're messing me up. Good to see you. Like many Christians before him, Luther did not recognize that the totality of a person's life and thinking in every area arises from a religious root. The result was that in Lutheran thought, a divide ran through the center of reality. Worldly life belonged to the realm of nature and law and... <clears throat> Worldly life belonged to the realm of nature and law, and as such was troubled by an inner tension with the gospel of love that belonged to a higher supernatural realm. This tension remains entrenched in the thinking of many modern evangelicals who oppose law to grace or gospel, and who regard most of secular life <clears throat> and who regard most of secular life as religiously neutral and governed by principles other than the Word of God. There is no intrinsic point of contact for most evangelicals today between their vocation or cultural life and the Word of God. They belong to almost sealed domains. Moreover, creation itself is consistently viewed as something to be finally escaped. At the very least, it is a devalued realm destined to be destroyed, and so again a tension runs through the lives of modern evangelicals between the sacred call to holiness given by the Church and their life everywhere else. Creation and redemption are essentially cut off from each other. Guys, if you're just joining me, thanks. It's good to have you. Yeah, the reason that I'm stopping and rereading parts of this is because we're getting the audio for an ebook here. So I just want to make sure that, uh, that Dave has something good to work with. Many modern theologians, notably Karl Barth, went on to develop a perspective that openly opposed the scriptural idea. Oh, sorry. Many modern theologians, notably Karl Barth, went on to develop a perspective that openly opposed the scriptural idea that there is no neutrality, 
that in fact a religious antithesis is found in all aspects of life in the world. As a result, Bart and others in his stream of thought rejected the notion of Christian politics, scholarship, and education, ecclesiasticizing and privatizing the Christian life. Bart presses the logic of Greek dualism and argues that the Word of God is wholly other, with no point of contact between nature and creation and grace. Life in the world is then viewed exclusively in terms of the fall. As the doctrine of creation recedes from view, knowledge of the ordinances of creation is lost, and creation and redemption are separated so as to divide God's will as creator and God's will as redeemer. Consequently, in place of God's law is established a vague and seemingly abstract command to love. All this is indicative of modern evangelicalism's denial that the totality of God's revelation is relevant to every area of life, and consequently that there is no such thing as a Christian view of education, law, art, politics, economics, scholarship, etc. Most of today's evangelicals have imprisoned the body of Christ, the organic church, and indeed kingdom of God within the walls of the church institute, its offices and ministries. As a result, the gospel itself is redacted to one small element of its full and glorious scope. This intellectual lineage reveals the well-intentioned pastors and leaders who strongly influence contemporary evangelicalism, like Mark Dever, are still in the grip of Greek thought as it has come down to them via scholasticism, Lutheranism, pietism, and neo-orthodoxy. Retreatism, Pietism, and the Church Piety is an important quality of the Christian life. Whoa. Sorry, I've got... Uh, can you guys hear that? I've got guys up working up on the roof, and they're running a buzzsaw. I'm going to try that again. <laughs> Piety is an important quality of the Christian life. It denotes reverence toward God and sincere devotion. But pietism is... the <clears throat> but pietism is the tendency to restrict the meaning of the Christian life to personal devotional disciplines and inward spiritual growth. Pietism, which has so afflicted all stripes of modern evangelicalism, was a movement beginning in German Lutheranism with theological foundations in medieval thought that quickly spread to the English-speaking world. The pietists tended to see biblical <clears throat> the pietists tended to see biblical orthodoxy as dead religion and boasted a more spiritual faith focused on the new birth and various devotional exercises. Emphasis was laid on emotion and feeling because doctrine was considered dry and intellectual. There are significant evangelical church movements today that won't sing hymns for this very same reason. They are allegedly too intellectual and get in the way of emotional engagement with God. All dualism since Occam are... I mean, it's important work. I just wish that they could do it some other time or place. All dualism since Occam. All. All. <laughs> oh, man. All dualism since Occam, and especially as expressed in pietism, has had the cultural effect of weakening the church and strengthening the state. With its retreat inward, Pietism was completely unable to combat the forces of the Enlightenment. <clears throat> With its retreat inward, Pietism was completely unable to combat to combat the forces of the Enlightenment, just as Lutheranism was found powerless with the rise of the Third Reich. The Enlightenment perspective saw the state, not the church, as the truly universal institution.
The church was the area of private faith. The church was the area of private faith. <laughs> the church was the area of private faith, whereas the state was the realm of reason. The state would therefore assert itself as the new arbiter of order. Given pietism's primary concern for spiritual life, it did not contest this claim. The same, is true of modern <clears throat> the same is true of modern evangelical pietism. It has allowed the state to move into and control most of life. <clears throat> Excuse me. And we have given up the majority of that ground uncontested. While on the one hand, emphasizing the church and spiritual life, pietism actually allows the church to become an essentially peripheral institution irrelevant to, the life, in the irrelevant to life in the world. Pietism also typically derides pleasure in life in the world, viewing this present world as comparatively unimportant. Pietists often refuse to enjoy good food, marital sex, beauty, and, ind and indeed life's many joys, with clear parallels to medieval asceticism. Out of, Out of such a distorted view of reality, pacifistic ideals also emerged, according to which being killed by thugs assaulting you in the street or being slain by invading military forces. Is preferable to killing one of the attackers. Since the pietist knows he is going to heaven, but the hoodlum may not know Christ and would therefore go to hell. This kind of pious sentimentality is commonplace in today's evangelicalism, where God's law is neither known nor regarded as important. The salvation of individuals from hell is seen as the preeminent concern for the pietist, not the glory, justice, and kingdom rule of God. From its inception, pietism was implicitly antinomian, seeing no place for God's law word. And yet modern pietistic evangelicalism is divided up into numerous groups, denominations, and communions, all too ready to condemn one another for not being holy or spiritual enough, too charismatic or too reformed and doctrinal, rather than focusing on bringing every area of life and thought into captivity to Christ. An immediate offspring of this dualism and pietism is retreatism. Modern churchianity seems to overlook many of the clear commands of Scripture. In Matthew 10.8 we are told, The kingdom of heaven is at hand. Heal the sick, cleanse the lepers, raise the dead, cast out demons. Freely you have received, freely give. In 1 Corinthians 6 the believers are told to establish courts of arbitration to judge God's people in terms of God's word. We also see the believers in Acts caring for the poor, widows, and orphans. The early church quickly launched hospitals, care homes for abandoned children, schools, homes for the elderly without families, and much else besides. It was not a church in retreat from the world, but an organic body determined to, <clears throat> but an organic body determined to live out the life of the kingdom, teaching and discipling all the nations in terms of everything Christ commanded. Long before the church was permitted to own buildings for worship, it had established a variety of institutions to meet needs. R.J. Rushduni has incisively commented, quote, The personal impulse and theologically grounded faith that we have an obligation under God to minister to human needs, to bring every area of life under Christ's dominion and God's law, and the duty to make God's earth his kingdom, all this has been abandoned as the church has retreated into the position of a mystery religion or cult. All the world is surrendered to evil, 
and only a little corner, the church, and the people in it represent Christ's domain. How will Christ the King treat a church that hands his world over to his enemies? It is amazing how many people there are. <clears throat> it is amazing how many people there are who actually believe they are holier and purer because they have surrendered one area after another to Christ's enemies. Because the church <clears throat> end quote. Because the Church Institute is rightly limited in its role and jurisdiction in the Christian life and human society, whenever and wherever an unscriptural dualism reigns, where artificial divisions of nature and grace, law and gospel, creation and redemption are propounded, God and his word become theoretically imprisoned in the Church, and Christ's reign is faithlessly limited to one sphere of life. All right, guys, that's it for that chapter. We got one more. This is about the way forward. <clears throat> the Recovery of Christianity If the Church Institute is identified simplistically with the body of Christ and with the kingdom of God, <clears throat> if the Church Institute is identified simplistically with the body of Christ and with the kingdom of God, then clearly the rule of Christ is only possible over that single institute. Moreover, the gospel itself becomes wholly church-oriented saving people for heaven and safety within the <clears throat> saving people for heaven and safety within the worshiping community until Christ returns but christianity the true gospel of the kingdom cannot be locked up within a single institution and in <clears throat> excuse me any more than it can be corralled into the enclosure of individual salvation from the consequences of sin for salvation which implies total wholeness and restoration is also deliverance from the power and corruption of sin. The scope of salvation is as broad as the scope of the fall. Clearly, then, the faith of the gospel is centered in Christ himself, not an institution. This is why we are called Christians and our faith Christianity, not churchianity. As Willem Owenail has pointed out in his criticism of Daryl Hart, quote, as long as we do not see the difference between the calling of the Church Institute and the calling of individual Christians, we will not make any progress in these things. For instance, Hart tells us that the Bible is the guide for church life and not for political life. This is a fundamental mistake. The Bible is the guide for Christian life, which is a far wider notion than just church life. Would Hart deny that the Bible is a guide for Christian husbands and Christian wives and for Christian parents and Christian children? And why not for Christian employers and Christian employees? And why not for Christian politicians or Christian business persons? The Bible is our starting point for developing a Christian worldview in which we investigate the creation ordinances for marriages, families, schools, companies, and so on. For non-church life, we do not rely only on reason and prudence, as he, following good scholastic traditions, asserts, but on scripture, as well as a Christian worldview rooted in scripture. The church is not the special community that renders worship to God. Christians render worship to God at all times, in all circumstances. End quote. In so much of the evangelical community, <clears throat> in so much of the evangelical community today, churchism and churchianity have replaced Christianity. In Christianity, believers are living out, applying, and asserting the lordship and salvation victory of Christ over every area of life, rooted in the scriptures. The gospel is the wisdom and power of God according to the Bible, for Christ is the wisdom, the glory, and power of God made manifest. His kingdom and rule is unlimited and extends over all the cosmos. 
of things visible and invisible, in this age and the one to come. Such wisdom in Christ and the gospel cannot be restricted to the church institute any more than the meaning of the reconciliation of all things to God can be limited to the soul of individual believers. God's wisdom is for all people and nations, and it is being manifest to all for the good of all. Surely the manifestation of this wisdom and grace must be the deepest desire of every Christian who loves the Lord with all his being. Sierveld asks the pertinent question, quote, How can you live openly in this world, God's cosmonomic theater of wonder, while the common, graciously preserved unbelievers revel in music and drama, painting, poetry, and dance, with a riot of color, a deafening sound raised in praise to themselves and their false gods? How can you live here openly and be silent? Are you satisfied with bedlam for God? Where is our concert of freshly composed, holy stringed music, our jubilant dance of praise to the Lord? What penetrating drama have our hands made? Human existence is not absurd. We glory in the image of God. The world is not a curse. It is good creation, struggling under sin toward final deliverance. We, as a Christian community, must serve up the new wine." End quote. The time has come to be done with the retreatist, pietistic, and syncretistic gospel of churchianity that has led to the radical decay of our culture, the collapse of the Christian calling, and the impotence of a politicized church. A new generation of Christians must, in the power of the Holy Spirit, take up the task afresh of being Christian lords in the development of creation and direction of culture as Christ Jesus intends. For this, we need true grace and wisdom not only in our churches, but in our marriages and families, schools and civic associations, universities and businesses, political parties and guilds. We need the truth of the Christian gospel to permeate family, church and state and every sphere of life as leaven through a loaf. We must boldly proclaim and apply in detail the wisdom of God for all domains of life, regarding not only the way of personal salvation, but for the entirety of our lives for the reconciliation of all things to God. Only in this way will the gospel be unhindered and the wisdom and renewing power of God be effectively released again in our time. All right, guys, we did it. Not a long book, uh, more of a booklet. Thanks for tuning in with me. Thanks for being here. Like I said, um, if, you, uh, if anyone was curious why I was going back and repeating certain sentences, it's because we are recording this for an audiobook, and that'll be released sometime this summer. So the, again, um, thanks, uh, thanks for being with me here. The book is uh, For Mission, The Need for Scriptural Cultural Theology. Joe Boots, the author. Uh, you can get this at ezrapress.ca. That's our web store. You can get it in, uh, in the hard copy version and... Uh, our good friend Paul also did us a uh, an ebook version of it that uh, that's, that's available. So thanks uh, thanks for tuning in. This has been a lot of fun, and if uh, if this was good for you, if you enjoyed this, uh, leave us a comment. We're gonna try and do this again. If there if there's an audience, uh, we're gonna uh, we're gonna want to uh, to carry on with this. Let us know uh, which Ezra Press titles you'd like to. Uh, to, see, to hear and to see read out and we will uh, we will try to get to them in good time all right thanks for being with us
Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the podcast for Cultural Reformation, brought to you by the Ezra Institute for Contemporary Christianity. Please take a moment to like, share, and rate the podcast on social media and your favorite listening platform. For more resources, please visit www.ezrainstitute.ca.